So the talk tonight is on the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, um, and really exploring this important teaching and practice, both theoretically and experientially, and also from traditional perspectives and contemporary perspectives. And so I'm just feeling my heart as, as I'm saying that I really want to dedicate this talk to the memory of Ruth Dennison. And I can feel the tears. And I've been reading some of your sheets, and I know that some of you, uh, like myself, uh, were touched by Ruth or had interactions with Ruth. Uh, Ruth and I weren't uh, personally uh, hugely close for a long time, but in her later years, we shared a teacher in common. And so I got to know her under some kind of amazing circumstances in that way. And there are a couple teachings that she gave me that just went right to the bone of it. So I deeply respect uh, the way that she wove the traditional and the contemporary through the vehicle of the body. I wanted to start the talk um, with a quote from one of many eulogies in her honor. So this is from Tricycle Online. Ruth grasped early on in her explorations that mindfulness has to be rooted and cultivated in the body. Using such a variety of sensations for developing awareness, students learn how to apply their practice in situations other than simply sitting on the pillow, she said. Often they do not know how to carry the practice home with them after a retreat. But awareness developed in such a wide scope of meditation pattern as I teach it gradually becomes a natural state. For Ruth Dennison, grounding the mind and the body was the way into the heart of the Dharma. It was the portal to a versatile clarity and lasting happiness that could stand the test of everyday life and the end of life. That teaching may prove to be her most endearing legacy. I dare say I agree. So out of tremendous gratitude for um, our elders, all of them, and whatever their favorite expression of their deepest understanding, we sit and continue the lineage. Thank you for sitting. really matters. So from the Angutra Nikaya, the Buddha, friends, they, they do not savor the deathless who do not savor mindfulness of the body. They savor the deathless who savor mindfulness of the body. And I love the word savor because it speaks to me of a direct experience. You, know, you can savor. So in the last year, among many other kind of dharma uh, journeys and, and experiences because this is my whole life. I had the privilege of taking a mini sabbatical practice period. And so uh, I was able to spend 100 days in India uh, studying, uh, training under some of the masters of our time that are still alive. 
Many of them quite advanced in age. Uh, Going on pilgrimage. So drove over some of the highest roads on the planet. And, um, you know, just went into deep retreat for a while, the same as you are. It's a commitment that I have, actually, for more than the last 15 years. I kind of call it a... um, with with complete respect, a laywoman's reigns retreat. So I've had this commitment for uh, more than 15 years now to sit between one and three months of silent retreat every year. So I did my long retreat there and last year. And so I'm thinking about mindfulness of the body and the way that everything is a doorway to wake up. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by is sometimes it's the most simple experiences that we have that are the wake-up call. Some of you have already shared with me, you know, the insight and the food line. You know, really, like, amazing insight, right? Or the aha when you're walking up the hill or you just reach for something and all of a sudden the whole of the Dharma is revealed. It's a total mystery. So instead of sharing some amazing, exalted story from this journey that I took, I wanted to share something much more simple and ordinary that had a tremendous impact on me, actually. So at one point when I was on the move during this time in India, uh, I stopped to stay for a period of time by a sacred lake. And any of you that have spent any time in India know that there are a lot of sacred lakes in India sacred to the many different religions and traditions uh, that uh, is the richness of the diversity of that country. And so staying by a sacred lake, and around the lake there was a kora. And the kora is a path. And it's also an invitation to have it be a path of practice. And so people would walk the kora. They often walked it at sunrise or at sunset, but they would walk it during the day as well. They'd walk around the Korah. A lot of them would have their malas, and they would be saying the great mantra of compassion. Om mani pe hum. Om mani pe hum. Om mani pe hum. I mean, walking and radiating compassion with the phrases and with the feeling. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, Some people would be walking and chatting with their friend and catching up on family news and, and connecting in that way. Some people were clearly walking for exercise. Taking care of the body is part of the practice. They'd walk around the sacred lake and get their exercise. I saw a lot of locals doing that also around the temple, um, the temple in exile of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. You know, they'd walk around His Holiness's temple to get their daily exercise. Not bad, right? Spin the prayer wheels and get your exercise. Anyway, in the lake there were fish, and the fish were also considered to be sacred. And there was a practice there of feeding the fish, kind of special fish cookies. I can't really guarantee to you that the quality of the ingredients in these fish cookies were necessarily good for the fish. But that was what was done, and so we did it. You know, lots of people did it. And it was an opportunity to, uh, 
to gather merit or sincerity or to do an act of generosity, that that might benefit beings and also benefit our own minds. It's also an opportunity to support uh, the women who were selling the fish cookies by the lake, you know, and they had families, a good opportunity to support. And so we would do this. And then around the lake, there were not just people, but all kinds of other beings. There were these dear, sweet dogs, just so sweet. And they lived around the lake. And I'd just come down from the high Himalayas, living at about 12,000 feet. And the dogs up there mostly ran in packs, and they were kind of wild. So it was nice to be around some sweet manifestations of dogs. And it's kind of like sometimes your mind is like a wild pack of dogs, and sometimes it's sweet and dear and... Also living around that lake were monkeys. No no surprise. Um, Certain elevations in India, there are a lot of monkey friends. I started getting curious about the monkeys from the perspective of mindfulness of the body. And I was actually working with them as a muse in my practice, having external mindfulness of other bodies. I started watching them. And, you know, they were fascinating. Sometimes they were so playful. And I I started thinking of that metaphor as the mind is a monkey. Sometimes they were so playful. And as soon as I came back here and saw the meditation hall roof, I thought about this because there were some monkeys near where I was staying. And the roof was just like the roof of this hall, except it was metal. And so the baby monkeys perceived that as a slide. They'd scamper up to the top of the slide and wee down the slide. And at the bottom, the mothers would wait and catch them, which was great because there's about a three-story drop between the end of that slide and the ground. So the mothers did what mothers do, which is they stand there and they go, honey, right here. Um, at one point, the monkeys actually started making little wee sounds. I never heard monkeys go wee. They were so excited. You know, it's just like the playful manifestation of these external bodies and sometimes our minds, right? Um, other times the monkeys were quite hostile and they would get into arguments with the dogs and it could get pretty vicious. Still other times they manifested as greedy, right? So I was thinking about, oh yeah, sometimes our minds get overexcited, sometimes aversive, sometimes greedy. We all recognize these completely. So this story is uh, myself and the relationship with the greed manifestation of monkeys. I'm calling it the manifestation of monkeys because none of these qualities are inherent. They're conditioned. I'm not going to say they are greedy, just they're manifesting as greedy. What if we give ourselves that gift? You know, not... I am horrible, just mind's manifesting as horrible right now. Big difference. So I was walking along one day and I decided to buy some fish cookies and do the Cora and do my mantras and feed the fish. And so I did. I bought a pack of fish cookies, as clear plastic around the fish cookies, and I started walking towards the lake. And I'd been there a little while, I'd gotten to know some of the local shopkeepers, and, and one called out to me, ma'am, ma'am, monkey, monkey. And I looked, and there was a monkey, and I thought, oh, how nice, you know, he's informing the American tourists that there was a monkey, and thank you, thank you, I see the monkey, you know. The monkey was quite far away, and didn't think anything of it. 
kept walking, and uh, the monkey was coming towards me. And as the monkey started coming towards me, I realized this was a rather large monkey. It's a male monkey. Uh, and it came closer, and I realized it was really large monkey. Like, it was like this big. You know, really. Um, and so I started to notice fear arising in the bodily formation. And I really, I noticed it. And it was like, okay. And I started to orient, like, what's going on? I could feel the fear. I could feel the adrenaline. I could feel the sense of, like, what is happening here? And I looked around behind me, and I saw a whole bunch of other monkeys coming in from behind me. And all of a sudden, the shopkeeper's going, ma'am, ma'am, monkey. I was like, oh, boy, I missed the boat, didn't I? You know, uninformed American tourist. So I would love to say to you that at that point I had an incredibly mindful response and I radiated such tremendous loving kindness that's just like the monk or just like the elephant that the Buddha tamed with his loving kindness the monkey was appeased and you know that's not how it's going to end. What actually happened was I screamed at the top of my lungs threw the fish cookies as far as I could away from this body, and ran. (laughs) Okay, so best intention, sometimes our Dharma practice looks like this. (laughs) So we'll leave it there, we'll look at the outline of this talk, and then I'll tell you the rest of the story, because it's not quite over. So we're going to be giving a series of talks over the next number of nights on the four foundations of mindfulness, on the body, feeling tone, mind states, and dhammas that John went over in the overview the other night. Um, In terms of, so we're looking at the Satipatthana Sutta. So sati, the Pali word sati, means mindfulness or awareness. Uh, Tana means getting established. And patana means in the proper way. So mindfulness, getting established in the proper way. What is the proper way? With wisdom, right? And when we look at the first foundation of mindfulness of the body, we've got mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness in the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Mindfulness or full awareness in all activities. Mindfulness of the 32 parts of the body. Mindfulness of the elements, earth, air, fire, water. And then the nine charnel ground contemplations. So if we were giving an entire retreat on the first foundation of mindfulness, I would take each of these and give a whole talk because I love this foundation of mindfulness. It's been of pivotal importance in my own practice. And we're not doing that, so what I'm going to be particularly focusing on is a piece under the mindfulness of breathing that talks about calming the bodily formation. Talk a little bit and reflect a little bit about the refrain or how we actually are wise through the foundation of the body. Like, what are we on the lookout for? What are we cultivating for? How does wisdom grow through this vehicle? 
and then also a little bit about the postures and all activities and continuity of practice. If you are the type who is interested in references, and I know that some of you are, um, the three references I use for this talk are Bhikkhu Analayo Satipatthana, very well known, and then Joseph Goldstein's uh, new book out, Mindfulness, wonderful, and then S.N. Goenka's Satipatthana Sutta Discourses. So those are my three reference texts. For me, when I came into practice, I had very little connection with the body. And I know from years of teaching that I'm not the only one that experienced this. I had particular circumstances that supported disembodiment, uh, including, as I mentioned the other day in the metta, uh, low-grade chronic pain from a car accident, uh, tremendous grief when I started doing retreats over the loss of my mother who died when I was in my early 20s. And um, also just the speed of the culture, even back then. Uh, (laughs) I was supposed to be an elementary school teacher. That was my education and my training and my plan. And so I know from teaching elementary school that part of the curriculum is not training kids to be in their bodies. But I wish it was. And it's part of why I spent 10 years teaching in the family and teen program to support people of all ages to land, you know, to land in their bodies, to be supported, to open to the truth, name the truth, uh, to gather their resources to be more effective in service. Some good years. So I consider the body a teacher for me. Maybe you do for you also. And there's a famous quote from the Buddha. In this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. I'm sure that some of you have heard that before. I wanted to share um, some background on that statement. Um, And this was from the commentary from Goengaji. And it goes like this. A deva called Rohita once passed in front of the monastery where the Buddha was sitting, and this person was singing, Keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. Questioned by the Buddha, Rohita said he was walking to explore the entire world and then beyond. The Buddha smiled and explained that the entire universe, its cause, its cessation, and the way to its cessation are within the framework of the body. So, back to body as teacher with me and the monkeys on the Korah. Basically, what happened on the Cora with that monkey and those monkeys was I had a nervous system response, right? I had a nervous system response of flight. My other possible viable option might have been to fight. I don't have tremendously strong conditioning uh, in the kind of alpha manifestation, 
Let's put it that way. It's not a strong conditioning in me. So the flight was an obvious conditioned response. I don't think freeze would have worked out very well in that situation. It would have had monkeys crawling all over me. Oh, here was the other piece of information I was aware of when I threw the cookies and screamed and ran. Some of the monkeys, a few of the monkeys in that area were rabid. And I remember having the thought immediately before throwing, screaming, and running that probably the nearest rabies shot was about 15 hours by car. (laughs) It's like, okay, move, Heather. So I moved. So there was a nervous system response of flight. It was completed. That's a very, very important point because so often for a thousand reasons, our basic nervous system responses do not have the conditions to complete. And that creates a totally different dynamic in the moment and over time. This was a successful response. Because I think it was a successful response, there's a few things that didn't happen that are really important to note. One thing that did not happen um, was that I didn't judge myself. I didn't beat myself up in that moment. It would have been really easy to. And because I didn't, it allowed me to actually reorient to the scene around me and connect with people around me instead of falling down a pit of isolation and shame. That would have been an understandable response. But that didn't happen. And so I was able to like look around, realize that all was well, and see that in fact there were a whole handful of shopkeepers who had gathered and were helping scare off the monkeys and asking me if I was okay and laughing. Now, I could have created a whole story that they were laughing at me. I had created a scene. This young American woman had created a scene in this small Indian village. You know, it was like the main event of the morning, right? (laughs) And I was aware of it. But it allowed connection. It actually allowed a friendly connection. And that's what's possible through the doorway of the body. If I had popped out of the body, it would have been more likely that I would have told stories about what I perceived was happening around me. Instead, I actually had the bandwidth to gather some information. So it turned out to be an important moment in terms of mindfulness of the body and, and what's possible. And I was also able to have compassion, you know, for the fact that I did feel slightly embarrassed, of course. You know, you just make a scene in a small Indian village, you feel slightly embarrassed. But it didn't have to be drama and it didn't have to be a thing. And, and I didn't have to be the main character in the play either. Sometimes it's like that when we can calm the bodily formation. So let's talk about calming the bodily formation. And I'm really hoping that uh, Ruth is smiling down right now because what I'm about to do is innovative. One of the things that I'm interested in is tying together some of the knowledge that we have in the modern Western world about the body and the nervous system with the ancient teachings and practices of the Buddha. 
And so you can see where it resonates for you. But the point isn't really so theoretical. The point is a direct experience. So we'll be exploring some of this in direct experience, right? How can we talk about the body all night? You need to feel the body. Let's not wait. And you don't have to change postures. As I'm speaking, where do you have contact in the body? No. And for some of us, it's like, oh, right, my body. (laughs) That'd be normal. And for some of us, it's just an invitation to sink a little deeper. Sensation, as Ruth would put it. Yeah. So Ajahn Suchito, one of the masters of the uh, Western Thai forest tradition, uh, he talks about this word kaya sankara as bodily energy. I want to share some of his reflections uh, around calming the bodily formation. So this is right out of the Thai forest tradition, but the modern Thai forest tradition. He says, modern life is backless, parentheses, use a chair, legless, parentheses, use wheels, and segmented, parentheses, we live in the upper 10% of our bodies most of the time. He continues, most people don't experience a whole balanced body. The body they experience is formed day after day by the impact of images from screens or the shock effect of stress. That needs to be addressed and undone. And I don't think you can do that through the mind, the will, or devotion only. So then he continues, he says, another memo, dot, dot. At the level of energy, body and mind are not separate. They use the same nervous system. Therefore, the stressed body equals the stressed mind. Easing the whole body equals easing the whole mind. And the mark of wholeness is that which is encompassed by receptive awareness. This is where we return to health and sanity. Therefore, we spread attention carefully over the body. And by connecting awareness to the breathing, we take its qualities through the whole of the psychosomatic, reactive, affective, habit-forming release potential that's called me. You want me to repeat that last part? (laughs) The psychosomatic, reactive, affective, habit-forming release potential that's called me. I have a simpler way of putting it. Sometimes we hold it as a process happening to a system. It's just a process happening to a system. We label me. And so the me sometimes needs to be in the foreground and sometimes it can relax into the background. Just depends. I always think it's helpful to dissolve and relax this self into selfing. If we can verb our way through life, then we have a lot more possibility and flexibility. So the first practice. In John's poem the other night, there was a line that some of you uh, have shared that you've appreciated And the line was, I am here. I am here. 
And in fact, in the Pali, the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta starts with this word, Ida. And Ida means here. Here, under a tree, or in an empty secluded space, we sit down, cross-legged, or parentheses, in a chair, (laughs) and establish mindfulness before us. Mindfully we breathe in and mindfully we breathe out. Here. That's happening here. So much of what we've been ardently doing in cycles of transition and arriving during this retreat, and we don't just arrive once, right? Some of us have been here for a long time, and yet haven't there been cycle after cycle of arriving in different ways? We arrive here. So what is one way to support the bodily formation to arrive here? It's a very simple practice that is not a normal part of our retreat culture. And it's actually the practice of using the eyes and using the neck to orient to hear. Right? So a lot of us were trained. I was deeply trained. And I very much respect the practice of guarding the sense doors. And in a traditional sense, the external manifestation of guarding the sense doors means that we're not looking around at everything all the time. We're kind of keeping a narrow gaze so that there's not so much sense input so that we're not storytelling as much. And it is a tremendously valuable practice at times. But when it becomes a rigid part of our retreat culture, it can be extremely problematic, right? Because anything that becomes a rigid part of a community or a culture, um, there's not a lot of space there. So with this practice, if you're feeling at any point in this retreat, I can't imagine that this would happen to us, but maybe, if you're feeling a little unsettled, you know, in your system, it can be really helpful when you come into the hall, not to start looking at everybody directly and having opinions about them, but just to walk in the hall and before you sit down, just kind of look around. Oh, there's bodies here. There's the exit. There's the window. I'm here. Same thing with the dining hall. You walk in, kind of orient a little bit. Oh, I'm here. Because sometimes what happens is we get so narrow that we're actually just walking around in the, the me world completely. But we can pat ourselves on the shoulder and go, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking good externally. Right? I've done it. You've done it too. We'll all do it. So instead of just talking about it, what if we tried it? What if we first committed, you know, not to like stare at anybody else? But what if you just took a moment to use your eyes, and if you're quietly sitting, eyes closed, you know, you can do it later. But just to look around a little bit. You know, there's an above us. Have you even enjoyed this beautiful ceiling yet? You can check and see where the exits are. The nervous system likes to know where the exits are. This is an expression of may I be protected and safe. It's a metta practice. So there are one, two, three, four exits. Pretty nice, right? 
looking around, and then we come back. Sometimes things will get so intense emotionally during a sit that it can be really, really helpful to just open your eyes and look out the window and take a few breaths. It's resourcing. It's settling to the bodily formation. And then you come right back. And it's not cheating. It's not, you know? But I know, we giggle, right? Because, I mean, that's not how I was trained. But when I was trained, we didn't have the knowledge of the nervous system we have now. So I'm going to tie this in again directly with the tradition. Um, This is a quote from Ayakema. So she was the first Western fully ordained bhikkhuni. And she's talking about guarding the sense doors internally. And this is part of the Satipatthana Sutta that we're mindful externally, and so sometimes we need to orient externally. Also internally. And so she's talking about guarding the sense doors internally. We can do it externally, internally, or both. And the art of meditation is knowing what is skillful. Is it more skillful to guard the sense doors internally, externally, or both? In, as a primary practice. That's going to change. She said, by being aware, we can learn to realize that hearing is just hearing and seeing is just seeing. Hearing is only sound. Seeing is only sight. The mind creates all the ideas around our sense contacts, such as, this is beautiful and I want it. This is ugly and I don't ever want to see or hear it again. Our senses are in constant touch with the world. We don't want to be blind and deaf and have no sense of taste or or touch or smell. Life would be extremely difficult in such a case. But the senses create a world of illusion for us. They are magicians because upon contact, they immediately induce the mind to create repercussions. We need to guard our sense doors so that while being aware of sights and sounds and touch and smell, we neither crave nor reject them. This is difficult to do, but a very important aspect of leaving suffering behind. So that's the internal mindfulness with the sense doors. Being care, being careful. So another practice is the practice of grounding. It's so important, whether you're in the first week of your retreat or the fifth week of your retreat, this these cycles of grounded and becoming ungrounded and knowing how to reground. Because there's many different reasons we become ungrounded. The bodily formation is no longer settled. (laughs) Um, And some of them are because there may be a lot of difficult emotions. Some of them is just the concentration gets so strong that it's like, whoa, do I have my feet on the ground? And there can be this tendency to go, well, if I do ground a little bit, am I going to lose something in the concentration? I've heard people say that sometimes. I've had that thought myself sometimes. 
maybe not all of us, but some of us, the full expression of the development and maturity of our practice um, needs to be fully embodied. Whatever the deepening of our practice is looking like. Without this grounded sense of embodiment, it's so easy to do a spiritual bypass and not even know it, even though our practice might be quite deep, just as an example. And spiritual bypass meaning that we leave something out. We leave something out. Give a more robust definition of that in another talk. So I take heart that Siddhartha, the Buddha here, knew something about this. And so Donald gave the entire kind of progression or map of the spiritual path. And he used the Buddha's life story as a part of an example of that to flesh out a little piece of that when Siddhartha was sitting under the bow tree in Bogaya, India, and being rocked by everything. Being rocked by greed, being rocked by fear, being rocked by doubt. What did he do? We have this mudra, this hand gesture right here. He put his right hand on the earth. Earth body meeting earth body, the elements. The earth is my witness to my right to awaken and be free. I take heart in that. And I use that as a practice when I'm being rocked. And at some point already in our journey, I think I mentioned it in the hall, and I saw a couple of people put their right hand on the earth and actually feel the sensations, as Ruth would put it, of the earth touching the earth, grounding. One thing we can all do right now is the simple experience of feeling our feet on the ground. Or, if your feet aren't on the ground, the experience of your hands resting in the lap. Would you be willing to just take a moment to take a few breaths with the sensations of the feet or the hands? As grounding. And you might be noticing the elements. You might be noticing heat or cool, vibration or tingling, blocks of wood, numb. We're not preferencing anything. We're saying now the sensations that we label feet or hands are like this. What we know about disturbed um, emotional states or anxious energy is that it tends to move up. If we use the mindfulness to support down, it can actually remind that energy that has another place to go. It can start to discharge and move out into the space element. So please don't take my word for it. These practices are short And often, that practice is a practice that I use hundreds of times a day. It's a baseline mindfulness practice for me. Because it helps release extra reactivity through the bodily formation before it has to be so reactive in the words and the actions. 
So we don't have to wait. Preemptive. A last piece is about um, working with physical pain. And we've been talking about this some. It'll be again in the instructions tomorrow morning. There's a piece about working with physical pain when it's pervasive or when on a scale of 1 to 10 it's spiking or staying on the high end, you know, closer to the realm of the 10. And I learned this through sitting this very long retreat uh, in the early years when I had the low-grade chronic pain from the car accident. The fundamental instruction is when a bodily sensation other than the primary object moves into the foreground of attention, you know, and is really calling the attention, we then move to that bodily sensation and attend there with mindfulness. That's a great instruction. What it's missing is, what if that sensation is strong and unpleasant and goes on for a really long time and we care so much and we're so ardent about this that we just stay with it? and stay with it, and stay with it, and stay with it, and it's two hours later, and we're staying with it, what happens? You know what happens. The mind gets exhausted, the body gets exhausted. So the art of meditation in those cases, and I know some of you have different things going on structurally, or or, uh, injuries, or you'll just have that one sit where your knee just feels like it's about to fall off for no apparent reason. Um, what to do, right? In a way, it's less is more. It's can we be so intimate with those unpleasant sensations that we don't have to like grit our teeth and stay with it forever, but just really, really intimate for a few moments. And then we come back to the primary object as a resource. So how does it look in practice? I would guess that m- many of you have at least some place in your body that is either uncomfortable right now or has been uncomfortable at some point this week. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I wish it was otherwise, but it's likely. Um, so, you know, taking a moment to think about that part and uh, maybe just even for the process of a simple experiential practice, uh, putting your hand there. And it's actually a metta practice to, of kindness. So like put a hand where there's been some physical reactivity. You know? <laughs> Unpleasant. And we can take a few breaths and just notice what are the quality of the sensations there now? Is it pulling, tugging, heat, cool, vibrating, yanking, what's happening? We'll just take a few breaths. And then we can start to notice where are the edges of that? Or if it's a a really big pain, we could say, where is somewhere else in the body that doesn't hurt? Can you find somewhere in the body that does not hurt right now? And take a few breaths there. And get curious, what are the sensations there? That actually reminds the system that there's more than the distress. 
And it reminds the system of that on a physical level, not ourselves telling ourselves this too shall pass. I'll be okay. I don't need to think about making a doctor's appointment. I'm making a doctor's appointment. I really don't need to think about making a doctor's appointment. And then the mind starts thinking about ice. Okay, I don't need ice right this second. Just a few breaths, right? Can be a really helpful practice to move back and forth. So I remember working with one person who had a lot of pain. And I asked her, I said, you know, can you find somewhere that isn't in pain? And, and her first answer was no, no. And, and a lot of respect for that situation. And uh, then I asked her again. And this little smile crept over her face. And she said, you know what? My eyebrows don't hurt. I was like, that's it. That's it. It's not so different with the mind. Some of us have had periods of time here on this retreat where it's just dark clouds and it feels like there's no break in the clouds. But even the smallest, less dark in the clouds is worth noticing, is worth including in those particular cycles. It's important. So the refrain... What do we see through practicing these four foundations? What do we see through mindfulness of the body? So this is from Analaya. The task of sati, or mindfulness, is to penetrate beyond the surface of the appearance of the object under observation and to lay bare the characteristics it shares with all conditioned phenomena. This move of sati towards the more general characteristics of experience brings insight into the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. Such a more panoramic kind of awareness emerges in a more advanced stage of satipatthana once the meditator is able to maintain awareness effortlessly. So, with all due respect to the level that he's speaking to, which I completely agree with, I would also say that on a more gross level, um, things change. When we hold on, it hurts. It's not as personal as we thought, are available to us in moments all the time. So in this way, one contemplates the body. How does one contemplate the body? So go right to the Satipatthana Sutta. In this way, in regard to the body, the practitioner abides contemplating the body internally, or they abide contemplating the body externally, or they abide contemplating the body both internally and externally. Or they abide contemplating the nature of arising in the body. Or they abide contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. Or they abide contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Or mindfulness that there is a body 
is established in them to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. They abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So that's the refrain. And it's the same refrain with body, with feeling tone, mind states, and dhammas. How we see, what we see. So we've been talking about internally, uh, externally, or both. I'm just thinking about if I want to share this story. I'll share this story. story happened on this retreat. Um, a lot of you were in the hall when I shared that I actually grew up in this retreat, first 10 years doing this retreat, two months, um, that it was happening here at Spirit Rock. So I don't know, it was probably about a dozen years ago, and, and I came into this retreat ready to go. I had been practicing a lot before the retreat, and I was just ready to go. And so from day one, I was, you know, putting in my 20 hours a day and um, just so on fire for the practice. Unfortunately, my body was not quite ready for that, to go into a retreat in that um, extreme of a way for the body that I have. And all of our bodies are different. So please, you know, there are different bodies, One body, yes. Different bodies, yes. Um, And so around day seven of the retreat, I just started started noticing my my knee hurting. Uh, And it it rapidly, what I didn't know was that an old injury was getting exacerbated. And it rapidly turned into something that was severe enough um, that I actually couldn't walk. I was doing walking meditation right out there, and all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, I can't walk. I can't take another step. So I sort of stumbled back to my room, and, you know, this is a big dramatic injury, and, and everybody was so kind and, and all of this. Uh, I finished the rest of the retreat the last seven weeks, and I learned a really big lesson about what Ajahn Suchito was saying, is that the mind and the body are not separate. Now, please don't start worrying that you're going to get a knee injury if your knee's hurting. Like I said, I already had something... It just unfolded that way. I pushed too hard for my conditions. But it really gave me an opportunity for the first time to practice mindfulness externally. And what I would do is I'd sit on the bench outside interview room one or two, and I would watch you. And some of you were there, by the way. I see you. You know, I'm really glad to be back here with you. And I'd sit out there on the bench and I'd watch you walk so carefully and gracefully and with all the mindfulness you could bring to it, whatever that was, and I couldn't take a step. I had my little scooter. So those of you that are doing scooter meditation, that is a venerable practice. It really is. I would work with the pace of the scooter. I'd listen to the external noise and watch the reactivity of my mind. (laughs) And I'd watch you walk, and I could feel that walking in my own bodily formation. It wasn't separate. You were walking for me. We take turns doing this practice for each other, internal, external, both. 
So arising and passing in both. And so we're experiencing this in many ways. Everything from the cycles of the body. If we've been here a while, it gets cranky and achy. It feels robust and alive. It gets light as a feather. It gets heavy as a stone. This body, same body. Some of us, it's like very, very precise. It's just flickering sensations that we're labeling body. So it makes me curious, what is your sensations? What are your sensations that we so quickly put a label to as something? Feeling a lot of tingling in my legs right now. You're feeling something. Or you're feeling nothing, but you're feeling the nothing. That was one of my, a great gift from Ruth for me. When somebody was feeling numb. And I trust her with this because she went through a lot of suffering in her life. I know she knows dukkha. And she would say, feel the numbness, darling. Just feel the numbness. No part left out. So fierce she was about that. There is a body. I love that. It's so simple. There is a body. There's no commentary in that. Analayo puts it without getting lost in associations or reactions. The way that Joseph Goldstein talks about it is we start to connect with this third characteristic of not personal, not so personal. We start to see that with every arising object, there is a rising knowing of it. In that direct experience, we start to understand, oh, process happening to a system. And there is a body. There is a body. Atsun Sutito would ask, how do I know that I have a body right now? And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world allowing all things their freedom. Whether we're talking about that on a personal level or a collective level. When individuals and groups are allowed freedom, there's energy available. It's not held back. And then, of course, we need that wisdom aspect in the proper way. Right, so that we can be wise in manifesting ourselves individually and collectively in independence, in freedom. So then, just a little bit on these four postures and all these activities. I really want to um, appreciate and recommend uh, the Qigong and I really want to appreciate Tija for the offering that he's bringing. Because by having the Qigong as part of practice here, we're actively engaging in all four postures. Sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. So even if Qigong isn't your thing, you might consider just going up one time for the very beginning of the practice 
where Tisha reminds us about the standing posture. Because when we get more and more comfortable in a fully embodied standing posture, then when we get sleepy and we need to stand, we're not just standing there hoping that we won't be sleepy anymore so we can sit back down and do the real practice. The standing is the real practice. And some of us are doing a lot of standing on this retreat. And it's very, very welcome. Also, some of us will be doing this retreat a lot in the lying down posture. And I want to share with you that that um, two-month retreat, I spent seven weeks in the lying down posture. I mean, at first, I was like, how am I going to practice? I was so attached to the sitting and the walking and the ability to sit and walk. And even sitting was just too much for a while for the knee. And I just remember this one day, I was so down, really down. And I have kind of a a quirky mind and and a a major sense of humor. And so this little song popped into my head. And the little song was this. I cannot sit, I cannot walk. I cannot sit, I cannot walk. I cannot sit, I cannot walk. But I could lie down. And I was like, oh, I could lie down. That's part of the practice in the Satipatthana Sutta. So not secondary practice, not secondary practice. And again, Tisha's offering some lying down instructions. Um, So we have all of these instructions available on this retreat. You're also welcome, not if you're just lying down once or twice, but if you're going to spend the whole retreat lying down as your primary posture, you're welcome to write me a note. And I'll just write you back a little bit of some tips that I learned because one of the things I learned during that retreat was how few teachers have done long retreats in the lying down posture. So here is one who has. So then we have mindfulness, full awareness in all activities, continuity of practice. So I'm going to be talking about this more tomorrow morning. But just a few tips. How we actually allow the continuity of the practice to be an equal or even primary practice. Firstly, tracking our intentions or motivations. It's important to remember to remember that when we get up and leave this hall, we are in a field of practice. It seems really obvious, and isn't it amazing how many times we forgot? Um, One of the definitions of sati, or mindfulness, is to recollect the attention, to remember our intention. It's helpful to have an anchor for the attention in the body. And I'll choose different ones for different activities. Like when I'm going down the food line, it's the arm and the hand. Um, When I'm walking out of the hall, it's the whole feeling of the legs. When I'm in the room, I tend to, the whole torso. These are not the right places. It's just keeps it kind of fresh, but also grounded. It also helps to choose anchor activities. And I would suggest that you choose a few activities every day that you think are, you feel are easy to be mindful of. And a few activities that you just notice, wow, I remember somebody said to me once, I've been sitting in retreats for 10 years and I've never once really had a mindful shower. 
And we just looked at each other and I said, give yourself the gift. And they came back and it was like the best shower ever, you know. Uh, So notice where there's just a complete lapse. And instead of beating yourself up, invite it to be an opportunity to stretch. So lastly, taking care of the body is the practice. And I say that especially because we're on long retreat. And in a group this large, there are a lot of different physical conditions here. And I really had to learn that over my own years of practice, you know, in sickness and in health, as it's said, in injury and in uh, not injury, that the things that need to happen to take care of the body aren't some extra thing we're doing and trying to get done so that we can get back to the practice. They are the practice. I had one retreat where hours of every single day had to, by necessity, be used to take care of the body. And it was my practice. In the Song of Zazen, it said, this very body is the body of the Buddha. This very body is the body of the Buddha. This is the only vehicle we have. So we take care of the body. And may these very bodies support our awakening in every way possible. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.